I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Who was the smartest man in the Bible? Obviously, Avraham. He knew a lot. Boom, boom. Welcome to the Deir Shchai Experiment, the show where we attempt to shift our view of Scripture from the way that we've been taught to see it to a new way, a new perspective, a new paradigm, a paradigm of life. This chapter, we're in Genesis 19 this week, and it presents a significant challenge to us in this regard, because this chapter is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we get to the story, most expect a message of fire and brimstone, and, and that's the part that everybody seems to focus on. And we've talked about that before because most of us want to look at the sensational. The thing is, though, is that we just talked about that. In the Noah narrative, we read of judgment of the unrighteous, and we spent an entire episode working through that topic. I don't want to repeat that previous teaching, only this time using the name Lot rather than Noah. So as I approached this story once again this week, I, I was forced to sit and to reread it multiple times. And I was forced to consider every aspect of the narrative and how it might touch on other themes in Scripture. Once again, I was surprised to discover that this chapter covers a lot, pun intended, of ground thematically. It connects to so many other places in Scripture. It contains some very deep truths that, I, that we really should not miss and that we all too often miss because we're so focused on the sensational. I'm going to try to highlight many of these throughout the teaching as we go, but we're really going to stop and camp on just a few of these and dig deeper into those few. So this teaching will get into a lot of really deep topics, so pay attention, go back and re-listen to it if you need to. Without any further introduction, let's go ahead and read Genesis 19, and then we'll come back here and talk about it. Genesis 19. And the two messengers came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Look, please, my masters, please, turn into your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet, and rise early, and go your way. And they said, No, but let us spend the night in the open square. But he urged them strongly, and they turned to him, and came into his house. And he made them a feast, and he baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all of the people from every part surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, and let us know them. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, and shut the door behind them. And he said, Please, my brothers, do not do evil. Look, please, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you wish. Only do no deed to these men, because they have come under the shadow of my roof. But they said, Stand back! And they said, This one came in to sojourn, and should he always judge? Now we are going to treat you worse than them. 
So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, and they wearied themselves to find the door. And the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, a son-in-law, and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are going to destroy this place, because the cry against them has grown great before the face of Hashem, and Hashem has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for Hashem is going to destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law he seemed to be as one joking. And when morning dawned, the messenger urged Lot to hurry, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed by the punishment in the city. And while he loitered, the men took hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, Hashem having compassion on him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And it came to be, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be consumed. And Lot said to them, Oh no, Hashem, look, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have increased your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I am unable to escape to the mountains, lest calamity overtake me and I die. Look, please, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not a small matter, and let my life be saved? And he said to them, Look, I have favored you concerning this matter also, without overthrowing the city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I am not able to do any deed until you arrive there. So the name of the city was called Soar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Soar, and Hashem drained sulfur and fire on Sodom and Amorah from Hashem out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, and all the plain, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a post of salt. And Avraham rose early in the morning, and went to the place where he had stood before Hashem. And he looked towards Sodom and Amorah, and towards all the land of the plain, and he looked, and he saw the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came to be when Elohim destroyed the cities of the plain, that Elohim remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. And Lot went up out of Zoar, and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on earth to come in to us, as in the way of all the earth. Come. Let us make our father drink wine and lie with him, so that we preserve the seed of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went and lay with her father, and he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she arose. And it came to be the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, See, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight as well, and you go in and lie with him, so that we keep the seed of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night as well. And the younger rose and lay with him, and he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father, and the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, for he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son, and she called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the children of Ammon to this day. So one of the things that we need to recognize before we begin is that this chapter and the last chapter 
were actually meant to be read side by side without interruption. To truly see this, we need to have a bit of a history lesson on how the scripture was formed. So, how old is the Bible? Well, it's been about 1600 years since all of the books that we call the Bible were collected together and bound as a single work. Before that time, the various books of the Bible were each separate and were correlated and collected into various collections. If you wanted to read Genesis, you would simply look for the scroll that had Genesis on it. You wanted to read Isaiah, you would find the scroll of Isaiah. You wanted to read the scroll of Samuel, you would find the scroll of Samuel. And if you lost a single scroll, then you couldn't read that book of the Bible. So if our Bible is 1600 years old, how old are the chapter and verse separations? Well, if you look back in history, the oldest chapter divisions can be traced back to Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and in 1228, for the purpose of assisting with citations of the Bible and other works, he created chapter divisions so that he could cite, for example, Genesis chapter 19. So that makes the chapter divisions of Scripture less than 800 years old. The thing is, is that the verses didn't come about until later. The, the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Hebrew Bible include verse separations marked by Hebrew character. But those verses that were there were five times longer than the ones that we have in our current Bible. The verse separations that we have today didn't exist until around the 1500s. In fact, it was Robert Stevens who included our current verse numberings in 1551. And this division was only for the New Testament, though. He didn't do it for the Old Testament. Again, nearly 500 years ago, that verses were added to the Bible. 800 years ago, we got chapters. Four to 500 years ago, we got verses. And these conventions have served us well for the purpose of reference and memorization. Unfortunately, these things don't help to serve us as chapters and verse divisions provide a break in our mind of the stories that are being told. Not a single book of the Bible should be read paying attention to these things. The text continues on and on and on without a break in the original version of every single book in the Bible, whether it's old or new. These divisions do not serve us. And in some instances, and this is one of those instances, they can actually serve to harm the entire scope of the narrative that's being talked about. Chapter 18 and 19 of Genesis should be read together as a single story. And it's the contents of the narrative that show this to us. Both chapter 18 and chapter 19 begin in exactly the same way. In chapter 18, 2, we have Abraham sitting at the door of his tent and he sees three men. He bows to them. He calls them Adonai and he invites them to come in and to sit, stay with him. The men come and stay, and a feast is prepared, and they eat. In the same way, in 19.1, Lot is sitting in the gates of the city, and he sees two men. He rises to greet them. He bows before them. He calls them out an eye. He invites them to come in and stay with them. And the men come and stay, and a feast is prepared, and they eat. And it's at that point where the story then begins to split, to break down. But that repeat of the opening ideas in each narrative is a pointer that's meant to get us to compare these two narratives as a single story, two sides of a single story. 
We are then to contrast and compare these narratives as a single whole. Doing that can go a long way towards helping us to discover what exactly is being highlighted in the text. One last thing that we need to get out of the way before beginning is that regardless of what we may think of Lot, Lot is considered a righteous guy. In the last chapter, we spoke of God's justice and how his justice will not allow him to destroy the righteous. Genesis 18, 23-25 says, And Abraham drew near him and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wrong? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to act in this way, to slay the righteous with the wrong, so that the righteous should be as the wrong. Far be it from you. Does the judge of all the earth not do right? And then in this chapter, in verse 22, it says, Hurry, escape there, for I am not able to do any deed until you arrive there. Why was he unable to do any deed? Because Lot was righteous. God's justice would not allow him to enact judgment upon someone who is righteous. He had to delay that judgment until Lot could get to a safe distance. And this shows that God thought of Lot as righteous. Was he perfect? No, but then neither was Abraham. In 2 Peter 2, 6-8 says, And having reduced to ashes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, condemned them to destruction, having made them an example to those who afterward would live wickedly, and rescued righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the indecent behavior of the lawless. For day after day that righteous man dwelling among them tortured his righteous being by seeing and hearing their lawless works. According to Peter, Lot was a righteous man. According to God himself, Lot was a righteous man. There's no debating that. And that can lead to some confusion. Avraham pled for Lot based on his righteousness, and God judged him as righteous. Peter calls Lot righteous. So the comparison of these two stories begins even before these two stories. It begins all the way back in Genesis 13. In Genesis 13, the shepherds of Avraham and Lot, they were beginning to have troubles with each other, and their possessions began to grow so large that they could not continue together. Then in chapter 14, Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown through a pagan king who was acting in a somewhat righteous way, defeating the giant nations, destroying the rebellious nations, restoring order to the land. Abraham, however, had to interfere in this action in order to rescue Lot from this tool of God. Lot then drops off the radar for some time because the story of the Bible follows Abraham and not Lot. And these stories throughout describe for us two different ways of righteousness. We've got Avraham called by God, obedient in every way to God. He fails at times, but he, he tries, he attempts. He trusts God implicitly despite his circumstances. He acts in humility before his subordinates. We've got Lot who recognizes a good thing when he sees it. He follows God by following Abraham. He chooses based on circumstances of, and his eyes. And he seeks ease. He seeks plenty and comfort. So Abraham is the one we all look to as the epitome of righteousness. And yet Lot is not described as any less righteous. In fact, if we examine our own lives, I think we would discover 
that our lives mimic Lot's way much more than they mimic Abraham's. Perhaps we should look to Lot's story for insight into our own lives, rather than sitting back and judging Lot for the choices that he makes when he faces a lose-lose situation while surrounded by evil men. So these two stories, they use the same quality as the pointer towards their righteousness in their various situations. What did both Avraham and Lot do when they saw the strangers? They invited them into their house. That is called hospitality. Hospitality is the quality of being friendly towards and treating well guests and strangers. In the ancient world, hospitality was something that happened instantly. There was not planning for hospitality. A friend, a dignitary, a stranger shows up in town, and you have the opportunity to invite them into your home to show them love. Hospitality is something that was so vitally important to righteousness that Yeshua had this to say about it in Matthew 10, 5-15. Yeshua sent the twelve out, having commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the nations, and do not enter a city in the Samaritan but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim, saying, The kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. You have received without paying. Now give without being paid. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for the journey or two undergarments or sandals or staffs for the worker is worthy of his food. And into whatever city or village you enter, Ask who is worthy in it, and stay there until you leave. And as you enter into a house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you, nor hear your words, when you leave that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. For truly I say to you, it shall be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than for that city. More bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for the place that does not offer hospitality to the messengers of God's kingdom. Let that sink in. Just take a moment and think about that. Sodom and Gomorrah will be traded better than the cities that don't accept Yeshua. Hebrews 13, 1-3 says, Let the brotherly love continue, and do not forget to receive strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, and those being mistreated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Hospitality is brotherly love in action, according to Hebrews. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Shrink from what is wicked, cling to what is good, and brotherly love, tenderly loving towards one another, and appreciation, giving preference to each other, not idle in duty, ardent in spirit, serving the master, rejoicing in expectancy or hope, enduring under pressure, continuing steadfastly in prayer, imparting to the needs of the holy ones, pursuing hospitality towards strangers. We all agree that hospitality is something that is good to do, but just how often do we recognize that hospitality itself is a command? Brotherly love is not just a recommendation, but it's a vital part of righteousness. 
Isaiah 58, 6 through 8 says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loosen the tight cords of wrongness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to exempt the impressed, and to break off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring into your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked and cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light would break forth like the morning, your healing spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, and the honor of Hashem would be your rear guard. So what was the sin of Sodom? Well, I can tell you, it was not simply homosexual mobs. That is only a symptom of the sin, and it's an extreme symptom just to show how far Sodom's sin had gone. In Ezekiel 16, 48 through 50, it says, As I live, declares the Master Hashem, neither your sister Sodom or her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. See, this was the crookedness of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of bread, and unconcerned ease. And she did not help the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and did abomination before me. And I took them away when I saw it. The sin of Sodom was that they were not kind to strangers. They oppressed the poor and the needy. They rejoiced in their wickedness. They declared their sin openly, and they took pride in their unrighteous deeds. Isaiah 3, 9-11, through 11, The look on their faces witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their being, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Say to the righteous, It is well, for they eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wrong, evil, for the reward of his hand is done to him. If we get caught up in that single example that we're given in this chapter of the wickedness of the city, then we can miss everything else that the scripture has to say about Sodom and the true reason for their destruction. This obsession that many have with the sensationalistic nature of the homosexual mob in the story causes us to completely miss the larger picture here. Even in the midst of the unreasonable demands, how does Lot treat them? He seeks peace. He calls them, my brothers, and he offers his own precious possessions to the mob in order to protect his guests. Now, to be clear, I'm not trying to excuse the sexual immorality of the city. They were guilty of this. But the thing that they were guilty of was way more than simply this. Jude 1, 7 says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar way to these, having given themselves over to whoring and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, undergoing judicial punishment of everlasting fire. So this brings up something that I don't think that we should miss. I've spoken before on the differences between guilt and innocent societies such as ours and honor-shame societies such as every society that the Bible was written by and to. Our society looks at Locke's counter-offer and we're revolted by the implications of his offer. We take his actions and we ascribe guilt to what he offered because we see it as morally reprehensible. An honor-shame society, they would not see it this way, however. What was it that Lot called these men when he created them? 
He called them Adonai. He called them my lords, my masters. He then offered and he bestowed honor upon his guests. And as the host, it was his duty to protect his guests' honor. Any shame brought on his guests was a reflection of his own honor. That was the goal of the mob. They weren't simply looking to gratify their flesh, but they wanted to bring shame upon their guests. This mob was an attempt to show the stranger their place in the city and to put them at the lowest place of honor in the city, to start them out at the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak. So Lot, in response to this, he placed his own family's honor on the line because that, that was less of a burden than allowing shame to be heaped upon these strangers. The mob, their response in verse 9 reveals this attitude. They say, this man, meaning Lot, is a stranger as well. Who put him in a place of honor above our own citizens? What's happening here? If we judge based on our own culture, we think of Lot as an inconsiderate and awful man. But if we look at the whole situation from the perspective of the culture that it occurred in, Lot was doing the righteous thing, sacrificing his own family, his own honor, and the honor of his girls for the safety and the honor of the men whose honor he had agreed to protect. His daughters would not have been eligible or desirable for marriage had the mob taken him up on that. He was giving up his place, his connections, his future to make beneficial connections for his family by making this offer. In reality, one of the greatest sins of Sodom that is being called out here is a tendency towards not allowing outsiders to have any honor. They attempting to bring shame on anyone who came in from the outside. And this speaks volumes to our political climate that we're currently experiencing. I'm not going to enter into that debate, but perhaps we should take this into account when we cast judgment on those whom we believe shouldn't be in this country. Lot Lot was truly acting righteously. And I've heard a lot of awful teachings that have judged Lot for his role in this. And this leads us to a major misconception that permeates all facets of our society. I've been listening to several Christian teachers and Christian scholars recently. A couple of them well-known names in the field. I'm not going to throw them out there. But these teachers that I'm listening to have in various teachings, in a various way, they define sin as a moral transgression or a moral failure. And if you've been paying attention, this definition of sin is very dangerous in my opinion, especially since the Bible provides a definition for sin in its pages. Or what does it define sin as being? First John 3, 4, sin is transgression of the law. It's as simple as that. Nothing to do with morals. It has to do with obedience. So what are morals? Morals is a word that's used to describe the judgment of between right and wrong, between good and evil. It's, the thing is that when people look at the Bible, it has to say in the Old Testament, we take anything that we don't like, that we don't understand, and we separate it out as being different, and then we don't have to obey it. We don't have to like it. We can actually call it evil. 
we can take any part of the law that's expressed and if it doesn't have any bearing on good or evil it's just simply you know what you eat or how you celebrate holidays well those aren't moral laws so we can discard those and that's dangerous because what's moral in a society changes over time 100 years ago being alone with someone of the opposite sex was immoral today we think nothing of it. In fact, our vice president is laughed at because he continues in this way. Seventy years ago, a woman showing her shape was immoral. Even at a swimming pool, showing skin was immoral. But today we put our kids in bikinis and we call it normal. Fifty years ago, promiscuity was immoral. Today, it's not only facilitated by technology, it's celebrated. Twenty years ago, Homosexuality was a sin and immoral in our society, and today it is practiced and taught as normal, and it too is being celebrated. Five years ago, transgenderism was immoral and a psychological abnormality, and today it's pushed on society as the right and the just thing. And all of this leads to my point, if we take what scripture says and say that some of it is applicable and necessary and other parts of it are not, then where do we draw the line? How do we ensure that that line doesn't move? Because morality moves. It moves up and down. It goes different places. Friedrich Nietzsche, he's a 19th century German philosopher, and he declared in one of his works that God is dead. That quote first appeared in Nietzsche's 1882 collection of works that were collectively titled The Joyful Pursuit of Knowledge and Understanding. In this work, after making this statement, he then goes on to ponder the foundation of what is moral and right and just. And as he goes, where does the definition of good come from if there's no central source for that definition? And his conclusion, after volumes of discussion, is that morals can only be defined by power. Might makes right, in essence. If man removes God from the equation of morals, according to Nietzsche, the determiner of what is right is who has the power. And that's what Sodom was doing. They had begun to determine right and wrong based on who has the power. The men of Sodom didn't see themselves as evil. They simply defined good and evil in a different way. And that's the danger that we face when we begin to look to God's perfect law, as David says in Psalm 19, and say that part of it is not for us because it doesn't fall on our scale of good versus evil. Because if we begin to discard any part of it, where do we draw the line? If we draw a line, are we not simply doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden? Isn't this what the adversary seeks to convince us of in the first place? Well, surely God didn't say. Well, well, surely when he said that, he didn't mean. Well, surely his word was not meant for you. Not, not today. Things have changed. And that is such a danger to us all. And we fall for it repeatedly. We must return back to his definitions, God's definitions. And that is the only definition of moral that there is and that there can be. 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Transgression of how much of the law? Any of the law. Transgressing 
any of the law is sin. Well, the mob, the mob, they, they won't give up. After Lot comes out, makes his offer of, well, here are these young girls. At least if you're going to dishonor someone, dishonor some people in the natural, proper way. You know, yes, I will take that shame upon myself. They'll have nothing to do it. That's not their purpose. They are not looking to gratify their flesh. They are looking to humiliate the visitors. The mob doesn't give up, and they continue to press in on Lot and to demand from him things that he is not prepared to give. And so the angels blind all the men. They then tell Lot what's going to happen. Hey, we're going to destroy the city. So Lot then goes out to the city and he tells his sons-in-law, and we don't know whether they were married to other daughters or they were the, simply betrothed to his virgin daughters. But his sons-in-law, they don't believe him. Why should they? Nothing had happened in the past. They had no experience with instant judgment. And besides, nothing like that had happened for nearly 500 to 1,000 years. This particular episode provides a template for ourselves who live in the midst of Sodom, the midst of Babylon, the midst of Egypt, etc. And that's that God will judge our society when the time is right. We can warn others, especially those who inhabit this system, of the judgment until we are blue in the face. But to those who are unrighteous and to those who are defining right and wrong on their own terms, <laughs> We'll seem as crazy people to them. They'll look at us and say, are you drunk? Are you an idiot? What are you talking about? That's just old stories. Nobody believes that. We'll be treated as Lot because we are, in fact, Lot living among Sodom. Lot goes home, and as the morning dawns, the angels warn him, get out now. And what does Lot do? He loiters. He waits. In his heart, he doesn't want to leave behind all that he has. Everything that he possesses is on the line. His house, his family members, his flocks, his gold, all the wealth that he has amassed, all that wealth that caused him to separate from Abraham in the first place. All of it is about to be destroyed. Lot is in love with his possessions and his place in the world. And yet, Lot is counted as righteous. Consider that for a moment. Have you ever found yourself judging someone's place before God based on how much of the world they allow into their lives? Oh, they watch Hollywood movies. They watch certain TV shows. They play way too many video games or the wrong kind. They dance. They play with playing cards. Growing up, those were big ones for my family. Their kids go to public school. They eat sugar. They smoke cigarettes. How about they eat pork? They celebrate Christmas. Is it possible for a person to live in Babylon and be righteous? Is it possible for a person to be righteous in their actions and yet not keep all of the Torah? Yes, it is, if it's done in ignorance. Lot lived in Sodom. He chose Sodom because it appeared to be a place that was blessed. It appeared as the very garden of God. 
But Lot did not consider the people or the culture of Sodom when he assessed the land. He moved into the city. He lived in the city. And yet, even there, even operating as a judge, he had no voice. And if he did have a voice, it was not heard. He was not able to influence the city or the culture. He simply existed in the midst of it. He was not on a first-name basis with God. He did not receive extended prophecy of what was about to occur. He received a very last-minute shove out of his house. Something else that we might consider in the story, Lot was called out of Sodom. And this call rings throughout history in many ways and at many times. We see it throughout Scripture. Isaiah 48.20 says, Come out of Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, declare this with the voice, singing, proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth, saying, Hashem has redeemed his servant Jacob. Jeremiah 50 verse 8, Flee from the midst of Babylon, come out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as rams before the flock. Continuing on in verse 28, Listen, they flee and escape from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of Hashem our God, the vengeance of his temple. And then continuing on in chapter 51, verse 6, Flee from the midst of Babylon and let each of you save his life. Do not be cut off in her crookedness, for this is the time of the vengeance of Hashem, the recompense he is repaying her. In Revelation 18.4 says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. That call is repeated over and over. When we hear this call on our lives, it's for our own good. We must heed the call, because that call will come again someday. Luke 17, 26-33 says, And it came to be as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the son of Adam. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah went into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And likewise, as it came to be in the days of Lot, they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all. It shall be the same in the day the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who shall be on the housetop and his goods in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember the wife of Lot. Whoever seeks to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life shall preserve it. The day of the revelation of the Son of Man. When God calls you out of Babylon, and this is something that can happen to any one of us at any time, do not turn back. Escape as if your very soul depended upon it. Lot's wife, she loved her life. She loved the trappings of her life. She loved the city and the people so much that she regretted having to leave. So much that she turned back to get one last look. And that was the last look that she ever had. Yeshua says that the days of his revelation, it will be the same way. Whatever you may have in this world, you must be willing to walk away from it. Can you do this? Could you walk away from the life that you've built at a moment's notice with only a word as your guide, a feeling, 
and impressing deep within your spirit? Could you walk away with only your immediate household members and not look back? Do you love your life in the midst of Sodom? This is something that's very difficult for us to accept. Because one day we may have to do this very thing of our own free will. Not death. Not an army on our doorsteps. Simply a word. Get up. Go. While this may happen to some of us before the end, it will not happen to everyone. Those who remain in Sodom are no less righteous for remaining there until the last minute. Less wise? Eh, perhaps. Less dedicated? Eh, perhaps. Less in tune with God and the world around them? Eh, perhaps. Less righteous? Certainly not. Lot himself does not want to have to go too far for fear of being overtaken in the calamity. He looks for at least the minimum of civilization as his salvation. Let me just go to Zoar. Not all the way to the mountains. If I go all the way to the mountains, I'll perish. Just as with God granting Abraham his request of sparing the city, we see God once again granting the request of Lot to go to the village of Zoar. During the story, we've seen several parallels. The opening of each narrative mirrors each other quite well, but the parallels do not stop there. When the angelic messengers make a pronouncement of what is to come, the wife of the righteous man does not quite believe the pronouncement. With Sarah, she laughed at the prospect of the child. When Lot is told to escape and not look back, his wife doesn't take the warning seriously. When Lot goes to the inhabitants of the city that were close to him, his own sons-in-law, they consider him as one that was joking. The Hebrew word used in verse 14 is the same word that was used when Sarah laughed in chapter 18, verse 12, 13, and 15. Those who received the report didn't believe, but rather laughed at it. Lot makes a request of God, and God grants it without haggling. He doesn't come back with a different offer. He just says, okay, have it your way. The parallels are all throughout this chapter. Verse 27 then provides a closing to the story that began in chapter 18. Abraham comes out of his tent, and he looks at the city. Abraham knows. He knows God's righteousness. He knows God's justice. Abraham knows what God had granted him. Only ten people in the city would be spared. And as he comes out of his tent and he looks down, he sees the city was not spared. What must it have been that went through Abraham's mind at that sight? Did he weep for the city? Did he weep for Lot? Did he just stand there soberly considering that he did not think that the city was that far gone? Did he simply sit in awe that justice had been done and that regardless of what happened out on that plain, that God had been righteous and just in his actions? What would you do if you turned on the news to find out that a city that your loved ones lived in had been wiped off the map? For me, it would be like seeing that Omaha or Kansas City was destroyed in a nuclear blast or some great earthquake or meteor. Did my family make it out? Were they righteous enough to escape God's judgment? Is God less righteous if they happen to have not made it? Events such as these, they will visit the earth once again one day. And it might be good to consider beforehand what our reaction might be. 
from the point of view of Abraham, can we still worship and love God if he takes my parents, my brothers, my sisters, my cousins, my nieces, my nephews, these precious little ones that haven't done anything yet? What about Lot's point of view? Could I still love God if he takes my children, my possessions, my spouse, my health, my dignity, my honor? Would facing any of this change who God is to me? Will any of this defame his holy name in my eyes? Fortunately for most of us, this is all simply a mental exercise at this point. The U.S. and Western culture, for all of its faults, is not as bad as Sodom was. We have not even reached the point of Israel and Judah before their captivity. How do I know? We still stand. The U.S. and Western culture still exists. We have not yet reached the fullness of iniquity that would require God to intervene with judgment. That day may be soon, it may be decades or even centuries away yet. But judgment will come. It will come to all mankind. Until then, we have a responsibility. Let's practice hospitality to those whom we may not know. Let's love each other as brothers and sisters. Let's not judge those who still live in Sodom, for they too are still righteous. Those who have been washed in the blood of Messiah have been made righteous. Do not judge simply because others have not made it to where you are. You yourself, we all still have a long way to go. We're still growing. We're still learning. Yesterday, we ourselves did the things that we judge as wicked today. Tomorrow we'll grow even more and we'll realize that some of the things that we're doing today were also wicked. We cannot judge those who are where we were yesterday without judging ourselves for where we failed today. We have to consider all of this. What was the sin of Sodom? That city has become a byword for a society of wickedness. They forgot their creator. They began to define for themselves what is moral, what's right. And they stumbled upon the same answer that men have arrived on for millennia. They arrived at the same definition of moral that Nietzsche arrived at in 1882. The same answer that the world practices today. What brings honor? Money. And money is power. What brings victory? Putting your opponents in the dust, either figuratively or literally. Victory, power, these determine what is right in our society. Our own country teaches this as the way to determine what's moral. Win the election, gain the power, determine what's right and moral for the whole country. We have to make an intellectual break from the norm. Nowhere in life does power determine right. That's the way of the nations. That's the way of Egypt, Babylon, Sodom. Let's escape the system. Let's flee from Babylon. God is calling each one of us out. Come out from among her and do not partake of her wickedness. Stop defining for yourself what is moral. The righteousness of God is not determined by societal norms. The righteousness of God is determined by the word of God alone. We must always keep that as our guiding light. 
as we go forward, as we walk through this world, as we walk through the darkness, and as we live in the midst of Sodom. The Word of God, His truth, that must guide our definitions. We cannot allow society, we can't even allow our churches and what they say as right and wrong to determine what's moral, to determine what's the right thing to do. Only God's Word, even when we don't understand it, only God's Word serves as that guide. So let's be humble. Let's learn the humility to walk in this, to live it out. Obedience, righteousness, it's not an easy thing to learn. But with God's guidance, with His Spirit, He can teach us. So as you continue, as you break away from definitions of moral and begin to look at definitions of life, let's continue to Dereshchai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Dereshchai, as we seek life. Shalom.